Podcast, volume number two, issue 94. I am DM Finn, sitting alongside DM Matt. How's it going, everyone? DM Nick. Hi, everybody. Master Sarge Will. What's up? <laughs> and sitting in with us is a special guest host of you, Greg, from the Unseen Servant Forums. How you doing, Greg? Doing well. Thanks, guys. Good, good. Uh, we're back on the show, and as you said, we have Greg sitting in as a special guest. He'll be a special DM. So we're going to jump right into some Greg goodness, and uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your gaming uh, history for the audience? Well, um, my history goes back to the early 80s. Uh, I started playing basic D&D with the Holmes book. Um, A friend of mine introduced that to me in elementary school. Uh, I quickly moved into the AD&D hardback books and uh, played first edition for uh, quite a while there. Um, I've... um, as I said earlier, I'm a D&D purist. I've not played many other role-playing games. I did play Champions a little bit, but um, oh. didn't do it for me. I uh, went back to D&D. And uh, I got out of it for a while, and then I got back into it maybe in uh, 2006. Said, uh, oh, yeah, I remember that cool stuff I used to do. And uh, I got out my old books, and uh, I've been playing first and a little bit of second edition uh, ever since. Cool. Great. Yeah, it's well, funny you mentioned how like you started. It's almost like how I got started into D and D as well. It's like mm-hmm. you know, you know, somebody at school they got these really cool books about monsters and fighting them and getting their treasure. And it, it's I I see that a lot, like on other forums. It's, it's it's very similar story that everybody has. It's just cool that we have this this kind of collective uh, start for everybody in this game. It seems pretty common. I know it was for yeah. me. And I, I quickly moved the you know, first edition AD&D too. And right. It's, just, right. it's really cool just like how a lot of people start that way. Yeah, I, I saw that, that Holmes book and I was just enamored. I, I couldn't get enough of it. The monsters, the, the pictures especially. I mean, I think we can all agree we love the first edition, old school, black and white drawings. Just yep. captivating. They say so much. And, um, yeah, I just, I was drawn into it and I just went headlong into it for the you know next few years of my life. It was, it was great. It was a good thing to do when you're re- 10, 11, 12 years old. Oh yeah. I just remember it. It's like something just kind of clicks. It just hits you. And it's like, wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just yeah. blows your mind. And it just like it never lets go. Yeah. Yeah. The first edition, the superior edition is like to call it, you know, superior. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, well, basically, Greg's here to talk a little bit about his website. Uh, well, in the 90s, we had our BBSs, and we had our play-by-emails, and then we started giving our play-by-posts as forums became more popular. Wait, 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 wait. BBS in the 90s? Yeah, I yeah. was in the BBS in the 90s. Both yeah. of service. I was BBSing in the 90s, too. Well, I must be crazy. I, mean, I know I was doing BBSs in the 80s. Oh, yeah, they existed in the 80s, too. They started in the 80s, and they actually went through... 
yeah. to the late nineties and even in the early two thousands, you could still find the ho- a BBS. All right, oh, wow. its popularity was in the nineties. Is what I was trying to get across. Uh, and then we got uh, where was I? Play by place, play by place. Will you really scoot me up? <laughs> Sorry. And then we got the invention of Skype along. I don't know, Mag, the invention of Skype early 2000? Uh, no, it's more like mid-2000s. Which kind of killed play-by-post and play-by-email entirely, but I noticed within the last couple of years, play-by-post has been really coming back a lot. And uh, Greg here is up in his own forums, unseenservant.us. Yeah, .us. I'm looking at the forums here. Yep. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about these forms and the features that I thought were really cool about the dice roller and everything. Well, I when I came back into it in the mid-2000s, I thought, uh, this play-by-post thing is, is kind of cool. Um, it, it, is, it is, as we know, it, it, it's a slow way to play, but if you've got uh, time in the day to check your computer a couple times, uh, you can catch up with what's going on in the, in the game. And so I thought, well, I, I know how to do this stuff. It's kind of what I do for a living is build websites and so on. And so... I thought, uh, I'll set up this forum and see if I can uh, get some people to come and start some play-by-post games and then maybe even do a little uh, old-school D&D conversation. And um, it took a little time, but we finally got rolling, and uh, now we've got uh, like 13 or 14 active games. Mm. And um, along with it, um, I built this digital dice roller. Uh, there are there are many on the Internet, but uh, there's only a few that store the your dice rolls in a database uh, for, for reviewing later. Um, and I thought that was kind of a cool feature, and, and I sort of banged it out in the course of a weekend or two, and, and I thought, well, this would go good with, with the forums, and, and maybe uh, the two could work well together. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that's, that's kind of where we're at. The, the dice roller, I built it a little differently than others, try to make it as easy as you can. Um, you, you, can, uh, you can save roles that you do regularly, uh, such as an initiative, a, a d20 saving throw, or a two-hit with your, your favorite weapon. And then uh, if you want to roll the dice again, you just come back in, click the button, bam, you've rolled, the, you've rolled that dice or that combination of dice. You can post it to your post in the forum, and uh, you've, uh, you've done what you need to do for that day uh, on, your, on your online game. So that's uh, that's the basics of it, um, and so far it's gotten pretty good feedback. We've got uh, we got a good uh, community going, yeah, and um, it's it's a fun place to hang out. I was told that you because uh, um, let's see, the R Redman was the one that brought this to my attention. Uh-huh. He told me that there was the dice roll was attached to the character sheet as well. Oh yeah, yeah. There is a uh, there's a feature that I built as a a character sheet that can be embedded into um, a forum post. Uh, so as you know, on play-by-post forums, uh, usually there's a thread that outlines everybody's PC. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, every time you look at a one, the, the format of the character sheet is a little different. Sometimes it's kind of hard to find what you're looking for. So uh, I, I built this character sheet that makes every, everybody look uh, kind of the same. You can go to it, refer to it, and uh, you know where all your data is. Not everybody on the forums uses it, and that's okay. Uh, but a, few, a, a good amount of people do, and um, I'm, I'm actually hoping I can update it, keep it. Uh, maybe you can upload a picture or something like that. I'd like to do. I'd like to do something like that. But right now, it's kind of the the character sheet is kind of a beta version. Okay, and is this just open to D and D games? Can like can I bring like a White Wolf game in, or maybe uh, 
uh, Margaret Weiss game to play, or is it just strictly D&D? You know, I welcome anybody, as long as you're playing role-playing games. Um, what it's turned out to be uh, is primarily old-school uh, D&D. We did have... Um, someone started a, a, a Western-themed role-playing game. I forget what it was called. Um, Aces and Eights, maybe? That was it. I, that was it, yes. Okay, cool. Oh. And that game sort of fizzled out, unfortunately. Yeah, but, the uh, Aces and Eights system just won't work really well in a play-by-post because there's too much of an actual targeting system you have where you're laying a transparency over a silhouette for the combat. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, so it, it, it didn't work so well. It kind of fizzled out, unfortunately. And there was uh, a couple... There's a one current game I think that's a like a D20 uh, thing. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily third or fourth edition, but it's just sort of a generic D20 fantasy game. Um, but um, like I said, anybody can bring any kind of game as long as it's a role playing game, you know, and it, and it fits the play by post uh, thing. So I, I welcome any edition as long as you're cool and uh, you know can maybe participate in the conversation a little bit too and uh, have have fun. That's all. I just want people to have fun. Looks like a good place. I don't have to open up the, uh, my own little forum in there to do my own play-by-play here because it looks kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and that's another thing I'd like to add. If anybody does want to go uh, to the site and and likes what they see, wants to start a campaign. Um, you can just send send. There's information at the top how to do it. Send me a PM, and um, I can get you set up in you know 10 minutes. Usually, I'm I'm at my computer a lot because I work from home. And uh, later that day, you'll be you'll be you'll have a campaign, and you can start posting, start recruiting people, and um, anybody who wants to do it, just uh, come right in, go right ahead. That's good. I'm looking at the uh, forums right now. You introduce yourself. You look at the players and games. Now, what are you going to do? Looking at the future, when you get like so many games going straight down, you got to start subgrouping them, maybe. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, it, it, so far, it hasn't gotten out of control so much so. Um, but I mean, the forums can accommodate many, many games. Uh, yeah, it, it might come to where the list gets long and sort of have to find which game you're looking for. Uh, I don't know what's the best way to go in that. Well, we'll we'll jump that hurdle when we get there, I guess. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, if you want to join these forums or join the air, you can just go to unseenservant.us. Matt will throw the link in the forums for that and the dice roller, which is unseenservant.com, actually, for the dice roller I'm looking at. Yeah, that's correct. I guess it needed its own server, maybe, because it's its own program, probably. Yeah, it needed a different uh, server platform than the forums. And, uh, you know, one is a PHP and one is a different kind of server platform so um i thought to separate them like that keeps it keeps it a little easier mm-hmm. while i have my own forum with my own play-by-play i'd rather come here because it has this dice really cool dice thing so you could use the dice roller in any other forum as well you don't Shut necessarily up. have to use it in relation to my forums you can really use it anywhere you need to Shh, don't tell me no, i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> Matt, edit that out. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, cool. All right, so if you want to go to unseenserver.us slash forum, and you can join up in the fun, open up your play-by-play post, play-by-post game now. So That's- do uh, I have a question. So all of you all do that? I used to do it a lot. Matt and Nick, do you all do this stuff? I play-by-post? play-tested a certain edition of 
D&D via play-by-post. Oh. But uh, that's the only time I've ever done it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I had my own play-by-email, PBEM, for the longest time. I was voted second best on Yahoo for horror games So in 2000. Oh, nice. Nice. That's impressive. Yeah, see, I never, never, ever did it, never dealt in it, never dabbled in it whatsoever. It's a very slow format, but it's fun. It can be very a lot of fun. Yeah, like, it, it is. Like writing. It is slow, but it is fun. That's for sure. I do know that on deployments that a lot of military guys were doing it while I was over there in Afghanistan and Iraq. I know they were doing it there. Yeah, it's the closest thing you can get sometimes to a game, so you might as well take what you can get sometimes. Yeah. Right, yep. right. All right, cool. We have some we have some guys on the forums who are in six and seven separate games. Yeah, I don't know how they do it, but uh, they do it. Have fun, and I can only handle two at a time or so. <laughs> but uh, a lot of a lot of people are enjoying it, so that's good. That's what I wanted. Nick, you have any questions or? Oh no, I just I haven't done a play by post. I was just thinking about when you were first talking about like it's when I was earlier this week. I was going through my old issues of Dragon Magazine. Mm-hmm. I'm like. I remember the whole the stuff about play by mail. You want yeah. to talk about oh. slow? Wow! Yeah. Oh yeah. my God! Uh, oh, yeah. Remember stamps, play by stamps. mail? <laughs> uh, yep. Stamps, stamps are only like twenty cents. Yeah, I remember, remember the game the... Duel Masters. <laughs> yep. Yep. I remember the Hyborian War play by Hyborian War too. Yeah. 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 I did the wrestling one by my mail. Oh, the one that's it's up in a somewhere in northern Ohio. But, it was in, a TRC, it was in, in uh, Dragon Magazine I saw it. And... Yeah, they were also advertising like Pro Wrestling Illustrated. They actually are still going on. Really? Yes, is that IWA. Wow. It, they actually still yes. are in business. They paid like a dollar back then to play. It too. was a dollar per match. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's a wrestling game? Yeah. Uh, it was all automated. Wrestling play by mail or play by post? Uh, play by mail. Uh, you actually you created your wrestler and basically picked your move set uh, <clears throat> for your uh, opponent, and your opponent would also pick a move set. And they had some computer program that they punched in your moves, and it spat out the results. And you wow. actually played for like title belts and yeah. whatnot. Uh, could you imagine how much shipping and handling I would do if I had to do King Kong Bundy? <laughs> Five hundred pounds. Uh, you hopefully you can get a large enough flat rate box <laughs> to cram him in. You don't simply can't King Kong box spell and tell him wrestling moves and say goodbye. <laughs> I think he was joking. <laughs> Sorry, we, we I all, was. We all know you're a Hogan lover, so you know. Who me? <laughs> oh no 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 no! King Kong Bundy all the way, brother. Anyway. And Joe LaDuke, if you remember him. I, I've known Joe LaDuke, yep. I know. All right, cool. So let's head into something we haven't done in a while. Nick brought it up as a good, fun, feel-good part of the show. Nick, stars. Okay, yeah, I got some uh, reviews from iTunes here. Uh, we're up to, actually up to 133 reviews, Woo. still averaging five stars. And our most recent one came in on the 19th from Dungeon Tunis Jeff. And Dungeon Tunis Jeff says the podcast rocks in unrocked before ways with five stars. And it starts, great googly moogly, what an outstanding podcast. I just love that, googly moogly. (laughs) So Advanced Dungeons & Dragons First Edition deserves to be played and enjoyed. And I'm happy to have discovered that I'm not alone in my dedication to what I believe is the greatest role-playing game ever created. 
don't be modest. Yeah. <laughs> Dedication and enthusiasm of the hosts is appreciated from the beginning of the episodes. And while their techniques may sometimes differ, it is abundantly clear that their camaraderie and enthusiasm for the game is their primary focus. I very much hope that anyone who's been disheartened by limitations and lack of creative freedom in other role-playing games give this a listen. Yeah. Yeah. If you're one of those DMs like myself who remembers how to color your dice with wax crayons, (laughs) and by the way, oil pastels work wonderfully for that if you happen to have ugly dice, if you can recall the thrill of exercising your imagination without the complicated restraints of goofy flavor text of later (laughs) iterations, I think you may find something here. As for me, thanks, guys. You've got me writing and drawing again. Probably the most inspirational thing to occur to me in years. Excellent work. Well, thank you, Dungeon Tunis, Jeff. We're glad that we can inspire people like you to, to get back into things. So that's awesome. Thank you, definitely. Yep, Great that's all stuff. that matters. That's all that matters. Dungeon, yep. I want to see some of his drawings. He sounds like he's a Dungeon Tunis. It sounds like he's going to be a, a professional drawer or something. Yeah, he must do some cartooning, some artwork. Yeah, hey, Dungeon Tunis Jeff, you know, drop us a line on our forums at you know, OSR Gaming and, uh, you know, log in over there. And, uh, you know, if you got a website or a blog or something, yeah, we'd love to see your, some of your work. It'd be really cool. Definitely. And the forums are jumping. Nick is posting more now. So Yeah, know. I actually posted a topic. I know. <laughs> Amazing. I know it's crazy. I know that, but the world must be coming to an end if I posted a topic. I know, and Will, we can't get him to shut up. He comes constantly. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I heard that. Yeah. Oh, really? I hope so. You're on the show. I hope you heard something there. <laughs> so, wait, yeah, I posted a topic there about the Fiend Folio. So yeah, that was. Good. I love the Fiend Folio. Me too. Will. You yes. Can we add Gamerati Day? Yes, I was. I was there yesterday. That was Saturday in Tacoma at the AMVETS post number, and I can't remember for the life of me, so please forgive me. All those veterans out there, I forgot what it is. I might be a member there. They hosted the uh, the event there, and, and I'll tell you, it was a very nice venue. Uh, Ed Healy was out there. He uh, talked about us and everything, and I, I think he's the one that hosts these Gamerati days or whatever. You know about yeah. that, Vince? Yeah, Ed Healy is Gamerati, yeah. Yeah, and uh, while I was there, I was doing Flames of War, I was doing a Call to War, a Star Trek, and I know I did another, oh, I was doing the Battletech stuff, and I'll post all those pictures later, but while I was there doing the Flames of War, uh, a gentleman came and says, hey, I know your voice from somewhere, I really don't know the guy and everything, and he says, your voice sounds familiar, and and he says, do you do a podcast, and I said, I certainly do, and he says, "Uh, are you DM Will, and I said, yes I am, he says, yes, you guys rock and everything, and then he ran back to this other table and brought these three other guys over, these gentlemen over, and they was talking about how well uh, they love the show and everything, they all play first edition, Uh, but they was there for a Pathfinder event, so nothing on Pathfinder, but they love first edition, they listen to our show religiously, and I just wanted to make sure I do a shout out to those guys and thank you for all the nice and kind comments you said to me yesterday. Awesome. Thanks for... We have a fan base. Yes, we do have a fan base. Oh, my God. (laughs) Joe, Nick. So, we don't want you. Anyway. Uh, Let's go to... I guess that's it. Anything else? Matt, what have you been up to? Uh, Not a lot, really. Unfortunately, my uh, weekly gaming session has... uh, We are off for like three weeks in a row so that's kind of sad and then i used 
then the weekly hero clicks I was playing at Yada Quest is no more. So yeah, my life has kind of been lacking in the gaming, unfortunately. I mean, we a couple weeks ago we started my uh, first edition Ravenloft campaign. We created characters, so we got a party of five with a. We rolled the uh, professions in the out of the DMG, and we created a backstory linking everyone together using those professions. There are a bunch of miners, and uh, we have a one sailor. So we're like, okay, we all they all from this mountain, uh, mountainous area, and they uh, would load stuff up and have it shipped off, and that's how they all know each other. So we did that, and we had them travel to the city of Briarwood, which is from the city state of the Invincible Overlord. It's just a Little uh, reintroduction to first edition since it's been years since um, any of them have played it. And uh, let's just say if they weren't going to Ravenloft, they would be going to Ravenloft after what they did to six goblins. Uh, oh. They killed three of them rather easily. Then told the rest, surrender or we'll kill you. They bound them. And then it said, take us, to, uh, where's your lair? We want to see your lair. The and one And the last one to respond to them, they killed. As they, <laughs> then they took them to the lair. The goblins led them there, and they uh, got the lair, and they saw that the goblins really didn't have anything. They just had some like pots and bedrolls and stuff, and the goblins are like gathering it up here. This is all we have. So they killed the goblins for not having enough loot. Threw their bodies in their little the little shack that was their and home. The alignment slowly started to shift. To e- yes, <laughs> and they then killed the goblins, threw them in the little shack, and lit it on fire. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. Obviously, there was no paladin in the party. No, we, there is a cleric, which, um, yeah, never ask a player, so what god do you want, without actually laying uh, some guidelines down for what they can pick? Because I now have a cleric of the flying spaghetti monster. <laughs> oh, no. Yes. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, which, uh, that so I've been reading up on the uh, Pastafarian movement. Pastafarian? Yes, the Pastafarians. That's oh, Pastafarian. Pastafarians. These are Rastafarians. No. Which, um, if you didn't know, they actually hold pirates in the highest of esteem. So he, that's going to uh, play into the story at this point. I'm like, huh. So pirates are considered the holiest of holy, according to the uh, Pastafarians. Because the... In current day, Pastafarian, uh, the amount of pirates is directly proportional to global warming. More pirates, less global warming. Less pirates, more global warming. So pirates are therefore good. Okay then. Yes. Uh But anyway, yeah. So that's what, and that's where we left off our little uh, intro to first edition. So I and uh, they arrived at the gates of Briarwood, and we're going to pick up in a couple weeks there. But, yeah, I'm just like, you slaughtered these helpless goblins. I actually felt bad for them. Wow. That's so, yeah, I'm like, yeah, they'll be tormented by goblins in Ravenloft at this point. Everything's better with pirates. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, thanks. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I'll be starting a 1E game finally in person, face-to-face next Saturday here in the great city of Denton. Yay! The state of Texas, which is trying to secede from the United States as we speak. But anyway. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I can't wait to start playing that game. It's going to be a lot that of fun. sounds fun. Found a DM, so I don't have to DM. I get to actually play. Wow. Yeah. Kind of excited about that, yeah. Cool. 
And, and I started, yeah, I, oh, I'm sorry. Game with the kids, that's right. How'd that go? Yeah, oh my gosh, that went great. Uh, yeah, it was last Saturday, and uh, we actually had we had four people here show. Um, other kids, you know, their parents had other commitments, whatever. Uh, <laughs> um, they did fantastic. I, I was really, really impressed with these kids because we, um, I mean, they're like, they're all 11, 12, 13 years old. And I figured, you know, that's about the age when I started playing. They uh, they got some, we got some great characters. We have, let's see, we have a half-elf ranger cleric, a half-elf fighter magic user. We have a human ranger and a gnome illusionist thief right now. So quite an b- interesting mix right now so far. And, um, you know, we started off. We're we're doing Temple of Elemental Evil, <laughs> and these these guys, I was very impressed what they did. We got they got to the moat house in the first session. Wow! And they yeah. And uh, I'll post all this. And I'm going to get one more session in. Actually, this coming week, we're going to play again, and we're going to have more people come in. And. Uh, but how they handled the moat house, I thought was very ingenious, and they they at least got the first level, you know where those bandits are. They got those cleared out. They just got to go inside now. But they've pulled off a really smart, ingenious way how they get those the flush the bandits out, and it'll be in my post. You'll probably see that. Um, yeah, I might post it this week or after I get the second second session done. I'll I'll. Uh, I'll write it up, but uh, yeah, I already got like three great pages written up from the first uh, first uh, uh, adventure uh, part of the adventure, and they're they're just having a blast. It's been great. It's so much fun. Really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. It is great. <laughs> Matt, see what you started now. I got to tell the audience now because we're laughing too much in the background. <laughs> yeah. Ever since you said the pirates, I put pasta pirates, and Will has gone on a tirade. Same. Well, now I was just thinking. Now it's like you have a cleric who worships the the big spaghetti god, or whatever. Instead of crate food and water, <laughs> what you do? Crate marinara. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the pepperoni pasta. The sea is made of pasta sauce. It snows Parmesan cheese. The anchovies are the size of whales. Meatball, cannonballs, and what's the last one here? Krakens and giant octopus have spaghetti yes. arms. There, yeah. nice. Oh we yeah, in, in that sort of Griswold from a few weeks ago. If you're a pastafarian, it actually shoots spaghetti sauce. Nice. <laughs> oh my goodness, I huh? can't believe we went back to that again. The Griswold sword. You have to get in your station wagon and drive to go find it. So <laughs> <laughs> the best part of that movie is when that cat got fried underneath that chair. <laughs> yeah. that was awesome. All right. Anyone have any? Uh, no, that's probably no. right. Sage advice coming your way. Sage advice. Okay, sage advice this week. Uh, we have a couple emails here. Uh, that's rfistaff at gmail.com or uh, 570-865-4210, the hotline. The first email is a very long email from Ivan, and it's really cool, but I'm not going to read the whole entire thing because you guys will fall asleep because I don't read like a normal person. But anyway... He uh, started playing D&D back in the day. He played first edition, stopped playing for whatever reason, and then him and his cousins came up with a game called The Game, which is pretty much a uh, 
bastardized version, first bastardized version of a pen and paper game they came up with, borrowing things from various games. He became very fond of it, and then he stuffed it away for a while, and then he hadn't played it in a while. Then he got married, tried to get his wife involved. They ended up playing Pathfinder. They went to the group, and pretty much he was really bored, and his wife's experience was really bad, and they wound up spending 12 hours and 100 hours in babysitter money just to find out they didn't like the game. Ugh. At one point in the game, he said that it was so boring that he threatened to murder an NPC if she didn't give us any information. And the whole group looked at him like he was crazy. But this is after eight hours of nothing happening. I guess the DM style of gaming wasn't their style of playing. And it wasn't good for a new person. So he came, he came home and went up to his attic and I guess pulled out his big box of games and found the game. And he couldn't remember how to play it. <laughs> so then he found... Uh, after looking on the internet for a while, he found Osric, and then he found our podcast. So he's been reading the book and enjoying our podcast. And he said one of the old podcasts we had mentioned, remember, Nick, uh, send in your magic items way back. Oh, in- yeah. Yeah, we did mention that, that if you had some homemade magic items in your games, yeah, send in the like the stats and everything. Yeah. He made up the Hammer of Fracturing is a medium-sized warhammer. Its handle is simple, made of polished oak. The head of the hammer is an unadorned piece of deep black onyx with a high, minute, a high mirror finish. The round face of the hammer head is an ever so small crack on the otherwise perfect shaped hammer. When swung in combat, it acts like a plus two war hammer. Upon striking its victim, you roll 1d100. On a d100, on the, on the hundred, a victim's bones and all his possessions, including his armor and weapon, shatter to pieces. Leaving wow. a crumpled heap with one hit point. <laughs> well, 99 to 90 or should I say 90 to 99 he's kind of doing it backwards the victim's weapons weapon shield if equipped and armor shatter a roll of 80 to 89 the victim's weapon and armor shatter on 70 to 79 the victim's weapon shatters on 50 to 69 the, we- the victim's armor shatters and on 2 to 49 the hammer has no additional effect but on a roll of 1 the hammer itself shatters, also causing the armor of both its wielder and the victim to shatter. Hmm. In addition, the razor-sharp fragments of the onyx explode into a 20-foot radius, causing all creatures in the area 2d12 points of damage. Ah! Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so I like it. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it? That's cool. Uh, he says, listening to your show makes me appreciate the idea of, of an uncertain game world. Here is a weapon that can be used with a devastating effect in combat, but also holds a chance to become a big disaster for its wielder. Plus, who doesn't like rolling dice to find out if you win big or lose big? <laughs> <laughs> very much enjoys the podcast. Thanks you very much. And his name is Ivan. That was email one. Comments? That's cool. I like that hammer. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, I, I like it too. That's just that seems like it would be a lot of fun. <laughs> well, I'm not using no magical game uh, items in this in this game. <laughs> yeah, right. It would be just regular common items. If they're magical, you can have them. I just like the idea that you know what he's. I guess he was going with the premise that you know, hey, sometimes you know, you get a magical item. It has it has pluses. There's benefits and. There could be something detrimental too. Maybe this week is maybe a minor artifact. I think it almost sounds like one. Yeah, in a way. I don't know. Cool. Thanks. Send us some more uh, magical items if you have them. 
Okay, second email is actually a three-part question email. It's very short, but he really wants to know some kind of things about the game. It's from Richard J. We'll do each part by one, and we'll go around and see what everyone thinks. Uh, one of the more signing issues I take with a and now that I have the reprints is that they actually have ability score caps on female PCs. I consider that kind of offensive, and I believe women in my group would find that alienating. Would you consider this to be a problematic for a social justice perspective, or is there a value in being more realistic? We'll start with Nick. What do you think about that? Um, well, what I think? Really? Yeah, think, honestly, what do you uh, think? Realistically? There are physical differences between men and women besides the obvious, but one of them is strength. Mm-hmm. For example, there are strength limits, for, even in the real world, for women to men, and that's just how it is, and the game reflects that. And, and there's nothing sexist about that at all. That's just the truth. Now, do you think that's alienating for women who are trying to play D&D? No, not at all. Not offensive to them at all? I, I wouldn't think so. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I wouldn't think so because it's just a realistic way of looking at things. Okay, cool. Let's jump over to your guest, Greg. What do you think, Greg? Well, I, I'm kind of going to go with Nick on this. Uh, it does make sense. Um, off the top of my head, I don't remember what the limitations are, like how much limiting it is. I think a, a it, maximum female strength human is 17. Okay, that's, that's. I think it is. is yeah, it? yeah. The cap is seventeen for strength. Okay, that's not that bad. I mean, okay, so you can't get eighteen. They can't get a percentile strength. All right, if they made it like fifteen, may, maybe that's a little too low. Um, well, it's on the race too. Don't forget. Oh well, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, we have seen some of those um, freakish female bodybuilders. You never know what their strength ratings might be. But uh, I do think it is kind of rare. So I'm going to go with Nick, and I think it's not a. It's not a sexist thing. It is just sort of a fact. Women are built differently. Well, I. What? How do you? What about Red Sonia? What about her? I mean, she was an exceptional person. Wouldn't you think? I would say she probably had a seventeen strength. Let's see. <laughs> uh, um, okay, maximum strength possible for a female halfling character is fourteen. Fifteen okay. for a gnome. Yeah. Sixteen for a female elf. Seventeen for a female dwarf or a half elf, and. Actually, doesn't have a male, uh, regular female human cap. Oh, really? Okay. No, I thought it was seventeen for seventeen for some yeah, reason. because I thought there was like a one point spread for all the races. No. Uh, maximum strength for possible for all non-fighter characters is eighteen. Maximum strength possible for female human or male is is uh, eighteen slash fifty. Is the highest you can go. Well, there you go. Yeah. I don't see the problem then at all. I male mean, strength for elf can go up to fifty-one seventy-five. Female half orc, that same thing. Male half elf can go up to ninety, and the rest go to ninety-nine. A human can actually get the slash eighteen hundred, and that's the only one that can get it. I don't see the problem then at all. Well, all it's right. even more so than what I thought. So guess what? <laughs> I I really don't see any problems with it. Quite quite frankly. Okay, cool. That's your opinion, uh, Matt. What do you think? Um, I don't really have a problem with it either. I mean, it's a slight difference between males and females, which is if you look into, like, the weightlifting records and all of that, there is a difference. Uh, you can just look at the Olympics and compare the times. Uh, due to testosterone, when it comes to feats of strength, the male body is 
naturally more likely to uh, be able to lift more. Uh, when it comes to things of flexibility and things of that nature, the female body's actually better suited. I've seen MMA fights involving females where one, uh, where the like the Ronda Rousey Misha Tate fight, where Ronda Rousey put Misha Tate in an arm bar and take your arm, extend it at a forty, extend it straight out. So we'll just call that zero. Mm-hmm. Misha Tate's arm when in this arm bar was probably about negative. 20, 25 degrees. Ah. And she didn't have her arm broken. Oh, wow. Due to the the flexibility. And I actually have a friend who will do that with her own elbow. And I'm like, oh, my God, that hurts so bad. She's like, no, that's perfectly fine. The female body is more flexible than the male body. That's just not human. That's freakish. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's circus material. Yeah, it you can find that the Misha Tate Ronda Rousey fight on YouTube and just go to the end and everyone I've shown that fight to just screams in pain when they see <laughs> Misha's elbow. Uh, but well, you're with it then, okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll before we go to Will and his soapbox, uh no, I'm kidding, Will. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say this. Uh while that's the game for a reason, you're the DM. If someone's gonna give you a problem about it, just wave the rule, is what I say. Yeah, yeah, that's a good could, point. Yeah. Yeah. You're the gym, so what a big deal. So what? A half-elf female has a higher strength than what it says in the book. Woo! Right. Yeah, well, you have to remember, everything in the book's a guideline, not written in stone. So make it do what's best for your game. Yep. Yeah, if they're, gonna, if they're gonna complain that much, instead of having this person complain, just say, don't worry about it. Right. No, well, it's not gonna break the world. It's like, like putting Coke and Pepsi together and explode or something. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Cthulhu is going to come out or something. I don't know. <laughs> no. Well, what do you think about all this? Well, honestly, I, I agree with the majority of what you all state. However, I will state this, though. Uh-huh. D&D is not a reflection of what goes on in real life. Right. With that said, there's no reason why females can't have a higher strength than 18 uh, using certain magical items, in, in that case right there, where they can have a higher strength. That's why you have belts and girdles and potions of giant strength and what have you. Uh, you know, let's be realistic about this whole thing. Uh, I hope the other questions don't have to do with racial uh, things, with, with races and everything, but that's a whole new tangent and everything. Uh, males and females have different phys- physiologies. We know that. D&D doesn't have to be like that. I play by the book. I play by the rule. The rule states this. That's what I live by. It's not a sexist thing. It's not a uh, anything. It's just I play by the rules, and I, I don't go past that. If someone chooses to look past that rule and say, well, this is a sexist thing, they don't need to be playing a role-playing game. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I, but I agree with you, Will. I mean, I, I think that goes for both men and women characters. If there's an, a magical enhancement to an ability score... It doesn't matter what gender you are. It's a magical enhancement. It's going beyond your natural abilities. So in that respect, yeah, if, if a female character finds, uh, you know, a, a girdle of fire giant strength, yeah, she's going to have fire giant strength. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, stay away from her. Put her in the Olympics. <laughs> I, I mean, that's what I mean. It's, it, I think what we're, we're talking about is just like when you first make your character and your, your, your natural ability scores, how they lay out. Yeah. When it comes to when they're magically enhanced by certain items or potions, what have you, yeah, that's a different story. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what gender. 
Okay, his second question. Uh, on a semi-related note, I noticed, and you guys are going to groan over this one, I noticed that non-human PCs have level limit caps. What can non-human PCs do when they hit that level cap and that will help them continue to contribute to the success of the group once the human PCs have surpassed it? What is the function of the level caps, and if I play without them, could it break the game? I'll have to say that, you know, my normal rule is just wave it if it's going to be that much of a problem, but it's in there for a reason. Right, right. The- one Edition is a human-centric game, and that was to make the humans more, uh, what is it, how did Gary put it, more uh, enticing to play. Right. Yes. Right, because mm-hmm. if you if you think about it, with the life expectancy of the demi-human races and how much longer they live than humans... You would have 40, 50th level elves, dwarves, gnomes, whatever, just roaming everywhere if there were not level caps. That's a very good point. So at that point, you kind of have to have them there for a game balance. Now, if you wanted to remove them, yeah, I don't see a problem with that, removing them for your PCs, because you're probably not going to be playing long enough to get to level 30, 40, 50 with your demi-humans. We'll stop at 9 anyway. Right. Yeah, I think most people stop around 9 to 12 anyway. Yeah, so... Right. But it, it, it's there just as a reason to explain why there aren't 30th level elves everywhere if they're living a thousand years. So. Exactly. Will? Yeah, I mean, I agree with the same thing. Uh, and, you know, I was afraid there was a, we're talking about level limits, and that's what I'm going to stick with for the time being, unless he says another question that brings up that one article concerning the racial uh, thing, issues with uh, D&D as a whole. But no, no, no. The, I play by the rules. I do have level limits. Uh, level limits go up in Arnest Arcana. So use that to supplement your game to give them them extra two, three, four, five levels based on their natural ability scores, not those that are enhanced by magical uh, items. But uh, no, no, it's a human-centric game, plain and simple. It's no different than chivalry and sorcery. It's no different than Harn Master. Uh, all those games, those role-playing games, fantasy role-playing games, made playing uh, non-humans extremely difficult to the point where it, you couldn't play them at all. So, no, I agree with it. It's a human-centric game. Uh, I think, who, who mentioned the, uh, the special abilities of the non-human races? I think Matt did. What's that? I think it was Matt. Yeah. I mean, the dwar- I mean dwarves. This, this is a prime example. 18 constitution. That gives them a plus five versus poison. What else does it give them? A plus five plus versus, five versus uh, spell? spells and for versus rod staffs and wands, too, I believe. I mean, give me a break. That's a big boost. Yeah, huge. It's huge. And let's not talk about all the other things that they get when they fight giants, for example, or right. all the other stuff. I mean, we can go down all the whole list of all the special abilities that the other races get. I mean, elves are immune to paralyzation from ghouls and gas and those kind of things, or and sleep spells and stuff. So, I mean, I think that makes up for the level differences. True, they might not live in a, a level 30 campaign, but good Lord, if they're that high, I don't want to be in that part of a campaign. <laughs> and just to be honest with y'all, the highest I, uh, I mean, we got to the G series, got to uh, the D1 through uh, D1 through 3 and Q, uh, Q1. And once they got to level 12, 13, and 14, that was it. We was done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People are done during yeah. levels. Yeah. yeah, that's it. I'm done. Done. 15, I believe, is, is, is it. It's done. 
Well, we had that one guy write in and said he got to level 200-something with his fighter and magic user. Uh, <laughs> he's got a big shovel. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Anyway, uh, so what do you think, uh, Greg, about that? Well, I can't add much more because uh, you guys have all made a lot of good points, especially what William just said about um, all the bonuses that non-human characters get. Uh, you need to uh, offset that a little bit with level limitations. And then, Vince, of course, what you said, if someone doesn't like it, just, just break the rule. Let them, let them go a few levels higher or, or use the Unearthed Arcana rules. Yeah. It's okay. It's not going to break the game. Uh, and, yeah, no, no one goes much beyond 12, 15th level. And if you do, uh, yeah, it's, then it might become a problem, but it's probably not going to happen that often. I, I feel this way. First Edition is a great game. I love it to death. It's so hard to sometimes find players. And when you do find players, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're sitting at a table, you're most likely friends, or you're new people gathering up for the first time. And then you got someone who wants to be, uh, let's say, a cleric, a dwarven cleric, and he's, he's eighth level cap. And you've been playing with this guy for a while, and he's eighth level, well, I want to go higher. Well, as a DM, you could say no or get out. Get out of my group. You don't want to do that. You lose a player. So, mm-hmm. like a friend, you know, he's probably going to say, all right, we'll just waive that. It's just best to yeah. just. Not have someone complain, right? Yeah, right. I just don't want the the demi humans to detract from playing humans. Humans' abilities just to go as far as they can. I think it's great, and it should remind players that listen: if you decide to play an elven magic user, you're going to be limited in spells because this is the highest level. I'm, I'm going all the way to the honest they can, and I, which I don't have in front of me because I don't know how high they can go. It depends on their intelligence. But whatever the case may be is, now now there's other alternatives to this where you can twist this around. And this is how you want to break the rule. Just do like they do the Cavaliers. um, Cavaliers and Paladins in them where they they have that alternate thing where their their stats go up each level. With those demi-humans for their their primary stat, just use that rule as well. You know, they roll the percentile dice after they go over level. And once it goes over 100, they add one point to their stat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, there's so many alternatives they can use to this, but don't let that be a game stopper. You're definitely right. Don't let it be a game stopper. Absolutely. And the I think that's pretty much it. The last one uh, is not really a question. It's more just a... a oh, you didn't ask my opinion. Oh, I'm sorry, Nick. I thought I did. I, you hey, well, it's very minuscule, so... <laughs> no, that's okay. No, ditto. I, 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 just kidding. <laughs> Actually, one little thing I could add to it. I agree with everybody else says, but one thing I guess you could do if you, if you were to remove the racial limits, uh, level limits for your demi-humans, it, that kind of, in a way, puts everything really in the balance of everybody wanting to play demi-humans. Well, the way you can kind of counterbalance that if you're going to have no level limits is have special abilities for humans. Yeah. And that's one of the things I did was, like, for my Greyhawk campaign, I think I brought this up once before, was uh, depending on what your, your, uh, the race that you are, either your Backloonish, Flan, Oridian, or Sewell, you might get a plus one to a, a ability score. And what, what country you might come from, you might get bonuses to particular weapons that you're, you know. So that's one way you can kind of counterbalance that. You can also give maybe special racial bonuses for humans, depending on their racial stock. So I'm looking at the on Earth Arcana right now. I'm surprised that with all the alternate rules that Gary came up with, he didn't, when he broke some of the rules, decide to give humans a little extra nudge or something. 
Oh, right. yes, he did. As a matter of fact, if I recall correctly, if you look at the very back of the book on the rolling up of characters, I believe that only applies to humans. Oh, yeah, the, the, the diet table? That's correct. Yeah, yes. like for Paladin, like, like he gets eight, 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 six siders for strength, but I don't think that applies to demi-humans. I might be correct, for though. human characters, you're absolutely right. It's there like you go. Five there you go. Or six or something like that. Yes. And depending on what class that you have, you can okay. have the roll up the nine six-siders for a stat. Yeah, I'm seeing here the special method used in the book. Yep. Okay, yeah, we did give him a little bit of a nudge bonus. Good. There you go. Thank you. Yeah, I don't really use this book much, so I don't know. He's old. <laughs> I'm doing this for memory. I don't have none of my books in front of me. Yeah. Anyway, and they did announce they were doing reprints of this book, by the way. Uh, the official announcement was out for that. Yeah, I saw it's going to come out in February, right? Yep. Yep. That'd be kind of cool. I'd love to see that and maybe a Fiend Folio afterwards. Oh, I'd love to see Fiend Folio reprint. That would be great. Yeah, that would be great. Do you think they can? Yeah. I can't see why not. Uh, a lot, lot of that was oh. White Dwarf. That's the that's what I'm thinking. I don't know if they can or not. That might be an issue there later on. I don't know. I don't know yet. It, dep- I, it I depends wondering. on uh, what the agreement was, who got to keep the intellectual property once. Right. Because that, all that was out of the UK branch. That's right, and that that could be an issue, because that I was wondering if, with all the reprints, if the UK modules are going to be part of that reprint process, or if they're just going to do PDFs. If they do that, it's a different story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just wondering about that. I was just wondering why if the Fiend Folio. That's I'm glad you brought that up. I forgot about that. That Fiend Folio was mostly UK property anyway. So yeah, I would oh, think oh, that yeah. if it was, I think that would it became sole property of TSR, which in, in turn is now part of Wizards of the Coast. So yeah, it was T- it was you it was TSR UK, so which was the same company just in UK though. Right, right. So right. I would think it would be, but the, wasn't the IP would fall under TSR? But wasn't some Dwarf. of that from White Dwarf Magazine, or am I mistaken? No, some of those were it did appear in White Dwarf Magazine, but uh, probably the deal that they made to have it printed. In hardback, in the feed and folio, they had to give the ownership of those creatures over to, you know, TSR at the time. Yeah. That was the policy that TSR had when you submitted anything through their magazine or through the company was anything you su- submit is becomes property of TSR. Yeah. They'll pay you, but... Right. Yeah, I could well, see that. I, I guess that I'm wasn't... just thinking of nope. the problems they had with the Dragon Magazine archive. Right. That's, I, see, that's not the case all the time. That's what I'm saying. You used a good example there. Right, because there's some of the comics in the Dragon Magazine archive that appeared in Dragon Magazine that TSR did not have the rights to reprint in that CD. That's mm-hmm. why that CD is so hard to find, because it was pulled. Oh, wow. wow. Unless you talk to DM Will, who can get you them? I... Well, yeah. Well, some of us already have it, so. <laughs> anyway, last thing is, lastly, do you think the game assumes that you've been reading Dungeon Magazine or Dragon Magazine the whole time? I don't see ability checks explicitly described anywhere in the core trinity of the books that they're alluded to. I think that they were assuming people were reading the magazines alongside playing the game at the time. I don't know. What do the rest of you think? Oh, what is he asking? Bob, like ability score checks you're talking about? Well, just it's not actually outlined in the book anywhere of how to do ability checks. And it's referenced a bunch of times. He wants to know, does it assume that you were reading Dragon Magazine for updates and 
questions and things like that alongside playing. Hmm. I would That's think. Good... I don't know. Um, I know. I, I think we, we talked about something similar to this before about ability score checks and how to do them. And really quite, if we're talking about before, it's like, it really depends upon the DM as long as you're consistent in how you do it. Yeah. You can use a D20 roll or a 3D6 roll, however you want to do it, as long as you're consistent in your game group and how you do it. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, I would agree with that, too. I think it's just trying to, because it wasn't actually written out how you do them. You yeah. want to know if maybe it was in a Dragon magazine or whether up to... I, I know what he's trying to get at with this question. He just didn't word it correctly. Right, yeah. He, he's just wondering, was a certain amount of knowledge required going into the game or a certain amount of uh, keeping up with the changes of the game uh, expected in these books? I mean, you have to remember, when these books were written, they were not released in an order that most people would think they would be. Right, the Monster Manual came out first in '77. Right, and then, then there the Player's Handbook. Several months year later, later, a the, year later, and then a year later came the DM's Guide. <laughs> right, so it wasn't the most well organized effort to begin with, and considering how small the staff was back then, I could easily see them in just trying to get the product out, uh, kind of like glossing over a. Uh, and be kind of living in that uh, gaming bubble where they know everything, so they kind of think everyone else is keeping up with it as much as they do. Yeah. Well, I just remember when I was a kid uh, during this time, like, you know, the early to mid-'80s, was whenever you got into <laughs> whenever you got into a, a game with somebody, it's like, well, how do you run your D&D game? And that was like one of the first things you ask because everybody – had their own little spin on it, you know? We still ask that, Nick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and But that's part of the fun. I always thought that was part of the fun. Someone always put their own kind of personal twist on it. You know, it wasn't like all sanitized and categorized and, you know, generalized like right. they have it now. Well, Advanced, went, remember when it first came out, that was the tournament play. Yeah, but even then there was variance how people did AD&D too. Right, at home, but when it was created, it was meant to standardize the play for tournaments. For tournaments, that for is true. Right. But at home, if you had a home game or whatever, I mean, everybody still had their own little oh, twist on things when they played it, you know? So, And that's what made it more like it was your game. It was very individualized in that respect. It's like Burger King, have it your way. Darn right. And if I want extra tomatoes and pickles, I want it. You get, well, they're going to be haunted with Cthulhu. <laughs> okay, fine. I'm no, good with that. I, I know personally, uh, back when this game this game was out, yeah. Back when we were playing this game back then, I know every week when I got my allowance, I always checked the store for new dungeon magazines and dragon magazines. I was one of those silly people that bought every one of them. Too bad I didn't keep them. Hey, I have a subscription. Hey, yeah. reach it to the choir, bro. Yeah, I, when I first started playing, I didn't read dragon or dungeon until much much later i really actually when i started in i really didn't even know it ex existed because i didn't get my books from a game store i was getting them from like just a mass market bookstore walden uh no actually a little professor oh, oh wow yeah wow. so i was getting my books through little professor and then eventually i did move to walden that's actually where i started getting my marvel superheroes stuff Heck, I got my D&D &D books from Toys R Us. 
<laughs> I, I remember seeing a Oriental Adventures in KB Toys in a yes. mall in like the late 90s. Or not the late 90s, early 90s, which that means it's, it had sat there for a while at that point. I got most of my stuff from a game store, uh, Star Realm, back in uh, oh. Omaha. But I did remember buying a Fiend Folio at Sears. Sears had some D&D stuff. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that that was the advantage of them getting that Random House deal. They were yeah, everywhere. Yeah, exactly. When they got, yeah, when Random House, they got that deal with them. Boy. Yeah, it, you could find D&D books at Sears. and got, I remember even looking up in the Sears Roebuck catalog, the Sears catalogs. He's like, oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so by chance, Greg... Uh, since you are the same exact age as me and born on the very same day that I was. Yes. <laughs> uh, back in the day when I was ordering my stuff, I ordered my stuff through uh, War Games West. Okay. Are you familiar with them? No, no, I'm not. I got my stuff from a little hobby and modeling shop that in the back corner, stuffed in the back, they had a section that had books modules and you know a dragon magazine and i i was like uh, i think vince said it i would every week I'd, I'd go there and see what's new and i would oh should i get this module or, or may, oh here's a new monster book or you know whatever and uh, that's how i got all my stuff i did have a subscription for like a year or two to dragon magazine in like 80 81 82 somewhere around there and that was pretty cool I would read that cover to cover as soon as it arrived. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I remember waiting with bated breath every month. It's like, yeah, Dragon come in. I had, I had a, I think, a subscription for like from 83 to 89 or 90. So oh, I had that. like for about six, seven years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wish I, I couldn't get a subscription because my parents where they were. But I did have a wrestling subscription of uh, WWE magazine. So. Oh, that, yeah, that fits in really well. No, I'm not playing. All right, so Sage Advice, RFI staff at gmail.com. Call us 570-865-4210, the hotline. That'll conclude Sage Advice. Let's head into Table Matters. Typical of all the evil creatures in the world, I like to find one with table manners. What are you kidding me? I spent years cultivating the worst table manners on the planet. Table manners. On today's Table Manners, we're going to talk about an old first edition uh, module, C2, the Ghost Tower of Invernus. Uh, the C series of modules consisted of six modules. I, I kind of hope that we'll get to C1 someday because C1 is one of my favorites. But C2 is uh, really no exception either. Uh, very interesting module for those that uh, do not know anything about it. I'm going to tell you a little history of it. It came out in 1979, which I think it was a, a tournament module at the time. Mm-hmm. They only had printed 300 of them, and it was for a D&D tournament at WinterCon 8. Uh, I went to one WinterCon. That was a lot. Oh, good. No, I went to two of them, but I, I can't remember what years they were. I have to go back and look at my, uh, my little ticket stub book that I have here. But, uh, yeah, so uh, they, they played this module. It, it was a tournament module. They only did 300 of them. And then they re-released it back in 1980, right. uh, and that's the, the red-colored uh, module, both the, the red and front, and that's pretty good. The artwork done by the legendary Jim Rosloff and Errol Otis, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, uh, a very exceptional module. Now, 
I do have the White Dwarf magazine where they rated it. They, they thought it was a pretty good module uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being awesome. I give this module uh, probably a 7. I'm going to give it a 7. Uh, a very good module. Dangerous module. Oh, yeah. And dangerous <laughs> module. Very dangerous. Uh, is it a killer module? Uh, honestly, yeah. it, it, I it can be. I think it's a killer module. It can be very killer. Yeah. Now, some of the highlights about this, I'm going to talk to you about some of the highlights of this module and everything. I'm not going to cover the, the things that the, uh, the other hosts are going to talk about. Uh, running this module, you can run it one of two ways. One, you can run it as a tournament module, which the, the red module, it, it is pretty much based out as a tournament module, or you can run it separately as a tournament module. So don't run it, just run it a different way. Uh, when I ran this module, I run this, this module multiple times, and I prefer to run it my way. If you do it the tournament way, provide, uh, now if you do it the tournament way, provide the pre-generated characters and so on, there's certain parts of the module you will have to skip. Now, I don't know how much all of you all have read, you know, this module, uh, yeah. up to date and everything. You notice that at the very beginning of the module, they'll give the player characters all this gold to buy all these magical items and everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You all notice that? That's kind of interesting. I like that. Uh, another good thing about this module, in any case, it provides visual aids. Very important as, as the player characters go into certain areas. Um, there is a chessboard scene in, the, in this module. Are you all familiar with that one, too, as well? I think yeah. that's one of the best features of the game is that chessboard thing. It's really interesting. Yes. Yeah, I do, yeah. too. I thought that was just superb. And in an event like this, what I would do is I would actually have a chessboard out and put miniatures on there and tell the players that when they fall down that tube, this is where your character lands in this square. What are you all going to do? And, of course, you know, you tell them the rest of the story and so on. Well, you, you run this. Now. I had a question about that scene. Yes, please. When they were moving, when the characters were moving, it says, you know, it's a white square if you move right, and if you do wrong, it's a red square, and you get take damage. Yes. And that square becomes a legal move. That is correct. Does that mean the player can continue to move along that path the same way they just moved illegally, or do they have to go back to what they're supposed yeah, to Yeah, that's their new starting point, that's, but they still yeah. have to move as the piece that they okay. are. That's where they landed on. Yes, exactly. Okay. I, I love the pictures in there. I mean, if, if you all want to see some funny art... Yeah. <laughs> I, I, the art is awesome. Now, I'm going to tell you, I, I, I really enjoy the art of this module. And the one with the chessboard scene where the one guy gets shocked. Yeah. <laughs> that, I had to look at it. It's like he's in the background there. He's getting zapped there. It's <laughs> awesome. And the other guy says, don't move. Stop. You're moving the wrong way. It's it just exceptional. The art is fantastic. I love the picture of the bugbear <laughs> smacking the dude on the side of the go- noggin there. I love that picture, too. Yep. And, and the other one with the Umber Hulk. Yes, oh yes, I'm a Hulk at the very beginning. Again, like I said, the artwork really made this module very fun to play because it just gives you these images in your mind saying, like, the players are going to be doing the same thing. Now, are there some issues with this module? Yes. Okay, one, this is a railroad module. If you have a problem with railroad modules, this is not the module to play. Go play Monopoly or something because you're not wanting to play this module here. It is a railroad module. It goes from point A it, it, it just it's, it's one line all the way. That's the only way you're going to succeed at doing this module, whether you do tournament. Uh, sorry, go ahead. I don't think this is a railroad module. I really don't think it's a railroad module. I mean, you, you give them your quest and you do it or you don't. You know, it's not really. Well, a ra- t- 
Well, this is what the issue is. You don't have to do the quest, true. You don't have to. You can quit playing the module and then never see the end of it. That's true, you could. But in order to get to the next portion of it, you have to go through all four towers to open right. up that door. That's railroad to me. So well, in order to... You gotta yeah. keep this in mind, though, because it was originally designed as a tournament adventure. Yes. It had to be designed in that linear format. There so you, you keep, go. Yeah, you, you got to keep people. You know, focus everybody. Focus. This is what we gotta do. So right now, now see that's a good thing that you brought that up because, like I said, it is a tournament module. Tournament modules are very linear, and the purpose of of tournament modules is not for a, a group of players to finish it in in the fastest time possible, but to accumulate as many points within this time period. This right. particular tournament module was set for three hours, and I will be straight up honest with you. I cannot see anyone completing this module in three hours. Even tournament style, huh? Even in tournament style, I cannot. You'd be very hard-pressed. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be very hard-pressed, and it makes it very specific. Now, another thing that I noticed very specific about this module is the experience group of the players. This is a module for experienced players. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I saw that, and, and I don't know what, why they really made it like that. It, it, I don't know. It's just one of those things, I guess. But I then think again, what I was trying to say but, was it's not a game for people that are running in, learning to play in hack and slash. You have to right. think. Yeah, this is a thinking man's module. You yeah. got that right. It is. And I'm going to tell you something. With, with Now, see, that, that's a good part. Now, if you do the tournament module, you'll notice also that the Wandering, mon, the wandering Monster uh, charts are, are, are not part of that tournament. Right. If you use this as just like an open, you know, day module, you know, I take as long as you want to and everything, then you'll use the Wandering Monster thing. Then I'm going to tell you something. These monsters, I don't know how they figured how they would fit in this place, but they figured it out. Did you, like, did you kind of, like, <laughs> cock your head and go, huh? Isn't that, yeah, like, like, the most weird, yeah, like, selection of monsters for a Wandering Monster? <laughs> so I'm like, okay, white, then were tiger. Bombardier beetles, doppelganger, giant lizard, giant snake, brown bear, giant ant, stone giant, and then horned. What? Yeah. Horned? <laughs> I'm like, really? I, I'm wondering how much of that selection of creatures had to do with the fact that it was a tournament module and they were trying to create some sort of balance or variety. Well, remember, the, the wandering monster table is not used for tournament. True, actually, yeah. yeah. Because that just it just yeah. bogs down play. It bogs down the play because you don't get points. Right. If you actually read the whole paragraph in the beginning, yeah, the Ghost Tower of Inverness, the whole thing, which is written really cool, like you know, in old speak language, pretty much. Yeah, it's a great introduction. Yes. It kind of oh, yes. explains that the wizard was insane and he summoned all these things to his castle and his keep to guard it. So maybe so that's why you have on the dungeon level you have gelatinous cube and a giant badger on the same wandering <laughs> monster table. Well, yeah. actually, no, that explains I, it. Well, no, no, no. Not with the wandering monster chart. It does not explain that. What they're referring to are the monsters inside the tournament module itself because when you look at the monsters contained within this place, it's still haphazard as can be. Because, oh, yeah. I mean, because if you take a look at the one room that has the, uh, the, the crystal pedestal where they have the words on the ground... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's either a carnivorous ape, an ice toad, a minotaur, or an owl bear. Yeah, and, and then when you run into all the other rooms, and I'm not going to cover all the monsters in there, but I don't think we're covering them. What are those uh, funny flying uh, manta ray creatures again? How do you pronounce them? Ixixa chittles. Ixixa chittles. That's how it's pronounced. 
Right. Well, then you have the, yeah. Then you have the rooms with the the pterodons, you know, the dinosaur, the flying dinosaur things. Yep. Yeah. Pteranodons. You have yeah. things. Then you have the Sioux monsters. It just that's why the layout of the tournament module monsters are really weird. Yeah. Now, when I say this is a killer module. This is a killer module. I, I just, it just, the Medusa in there, the oh, fire yeah. giant, uh, it, it just goes on and goes on. This is really a killer dungeon. So, yes, I expect, uh, you know, experienced players to really play this module, whether it's the tournament version or whether you do it just open play and not use the tournament version at all whatsoever. Yeah. Um, basically, the whole premise is you have a group of adventurers going into this place, uh, they get hired. They can be hired, or they may be pressed into it. They have to find this magical gem called the Soul Gem. Now, I'm not going to cover the Soul Gem. Matt will cover that in the Dragon's Horde. Um, I'm not going to cover anything of, of the cool things like the visual handouts, all that stuff, because Nick will cover that part. Yeah. And uh, as, as a DM, my advice to any DM is to read this module as any module in this format from front to back, back to front, and, you know, make a decision whether it's going to be a tournament and uh, or whether you're going to do it the open play. And then and, and from there on, just this, this, this map it out from there on. Um, like I said, I, I don't say even if you do play the tournament version, you don't even have to have the time lit on there. Just do the tournament version because all the damage is already set, if I'm correct. If you take a look at yeah, yes. the damage, yeah, yeah. it's already set in certain areas, you know, how much and uh, whatever you want to do, run with it. But personally, I think DMs need to just run it as an open style, you know, module, just like a regular module. Yeah. No time limit. Uh, now, what I will tell you is do not give them all that gold and loot and everything. <laughs> to buy the magical items because that's for the tournament players. Right, right. That's different. You got that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, don't use that for for the regular because have experienced people and they do explain in in the beginning uh, on the levels the levels can uh, uh change now if you don't want to use five seven levels if you uh, how many people say they can do this um five to ten the, i think five to ten five players to ten. yeah six to ten or five to ten if you have less raise the levels maybe one or two levels yeah. so that it adjusts for the threats yeah. that you face later on because believe me there are some threats in here and you, you're now it's also possible that players will never encounter certain rooms like the room with the gravitational issues right well that one i'm sorry that if you're running a tournament module versus a regular module some of the rooms have different uh, it's either bolded or put in parentheses so you can skip or use it. Right, as yeah, the tournament ones are parentheses. Yeah, you don't use them like the the what is it right here? I got it right here the uh, the illusionary ball and the crystal pedestal. Those aren't using right. the tournament. Right, exactly. Or oh, and and you know it just it, yeah because see, those things are gonna it's gonna kill time. The same thing with the right. I believe the reverse gravity effect right. in the water level. <laughs> right. Just at the map, it's a lot of empty rooms, which it tells you that it's that way for the tournament. And if you're running it regular, feel free to just throw whatever you want in there. Yes. And so that's the key thing to this this whole module. Um, great module, great module. One of my favorites. It's in my top twenty five. Not in my top ten, but uh, the C series of modules is actually the entire series. I really did like them. I really did like them. Yeah. C1 is my favorite. Yes, yeah, C1 uh, I, is good too. I do have some insight on this one. I ran the Hackmaster version of this 
What is the, yeah. yeah, there is a Hackmaster version of this. A little bit different, not that much. So if you can't find this one, you could definitely, you know, go out and find the Hackmaster version. There's, I think there's just a one little spin on this. Now, as far as tournament play, if people are thinking about running this as a tournament, like what you said, uh, uh, Will, that you, you find it hard to play this in three to four hours, absolutely true. That's <laughs> I can't see how you could. That's is why I think this one, if you run this as a tournament, it's probably best you run it in rounds of of a tournament. Like you have two or three rounds of a tournament. Like what how they did it on the Hackmaster version, the first round was where you got whoever, you know, you got as far as you could through the dungeon level and right. get those keys together. Yeah. Okay, then you accumulate scores, then you go on the round two, which round two would be your different uh element levels. Levels, yep. And that probably is the best way to do it. It because it's going to take a long time. You probably want to do like a two, maybe even a three-part uh, um, tournament for this one. I just couldn't right. see how you could do it in one either. Yeah, yeah I, I just can't see it. And, and like I said, and when you deal like with the uh, the Umber Hulk, yeah. I mean, you have to deal with the confusion issue. And again, this is right. more time, more time. Yeah. There's so much time that gets you know invested. In all and then you go to the room with the chess pieces, and then it just it just adds more time. Mm-hmm. And you know, and, and and the goal is as a as a tournament a tournament module is not to go through it the fastest. I believe I mentioned this already before, but yeah. is to try and get as far as you can accomplishing as much as you can in rooms and accumulating points. And there's a point system here that tells you how, you know, how many points you'll get to do what. And I believe that's toward the back as well, if I'm correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, there it is, right there in the back on the time record, which is really good. I mean, it's it's, it's kind of accurate. I had to study it again. It's been a long time since I've seen the tournament version and looked at it from a tournament point of view. I will only run this from an open gameplay style because, I mean, tournament, I mean, this is good for a tournament if you want to run a tournament at a convention. But then again, I, I think uh, it defeats the purpose of running it because people can download it. They can find it. People probably already know it. So, well, hopefully they wouldn't use that knowledge against so that. That would be metagaming. Of course. And you know how that goes and so on. But yeah. like I said, the highlights of this this module is the handouts. The, uh, the artwork is just <laughs> – the artwork is superb. Yeah. Uh, but this is your classic first edition AD&D module with box tech, uh, uh, box text. I like box text. And ah. it, it, it <laughs> sorry, <laughs> our one distractor there. <laughs> Actually, the box, the box text in this are pretty lame to begin with. Some but of them that's are not too bad. It's not bad, but they did it for a tournament point of view. They don't want to spend too much time reading, and that was the whole point. But yeah. until you yeah. get to the later levels, and that's the whole point. point. The less the DM reads, the more time that players have to act and do what they got to do. Like I said, this is one of the classics. It's one of my favorites. Uh, I have never seen anything negative being written about it. Uh, White Dwarf Magazine talks about it. They gave it a good rating. It's Mm -hmm. a good module. It is a killer module. With those monsters, they will wipe a party out in a heartbeat. I I, I like it, and uh, I will never speak ill of it. Yeah, you know, and it is a, definitely a thinking player's module. Yeah, like I said, if you uh, just kind of add on what you said and to reiterate there, but if you're thinking of doing a tournament, you got to like a two or three day convention that you want to, you know, uh, sign up for and you want to DM and you want to run a tournament, this is 
you could do it with this one, but you would have to split basically the module in half. You know, part one of your tournament is the dungeon level, and part two are your element, are your the four element levels. The the tower itself. Uh, yeah, the actual tower itself. If you split up in those those two different halves, I think it could be done because I I did we did it with the Hackmaster version one and it worked great. So yeah, but as a one like all together in one like four hour session at a convention, no way. Couldn't do it. It'd be very hard to do. Now, uh, I, I meant to mention one more thing since we're talking about the historical aspect of this. Uh, uh, the uh, RPGA had a return to the Ghost Tower in Vernus. I thought it was there. If anyone can please find that, please. I'd really like to get my hands on that particular. There was a RPGA. return to the Ghost Tower, like on the other ones? Yes, it like was. Return to the Keep of Borderlands and all that? Well, it said in 2003, the RPGA Living Greyhawk campaign released adventure. Oh, so, okay. It's for third edition. If we yeah. can find that, I really would like to find that. I have never seen it. I would really like to get that. And uh, I also, I provided a link to you all. If you all can see that link there uh, to this right here on Wizards of the Coast website, they had a very nice uh, review of the uh, C2, the first edition. Ghost Tower of Invernus. It's actually a really good write-up. Well done. Awesome. Cool. Uh, that's Greg, that. did you, Greg, did you run this module? Have you ever played through this since you do first edition? Yeah, I, this was one that I had as a kid, and I just really liked it back then. And uh, I can remember running um, my players through it, because I was a DM a lot back then, more than a player. And um, we always had a great time with it. Um, you know, like the, the chess room is, is, is awesome. Um, and I like the fact, something I was going to mention earlier, I like the fact that in order to find each of the four parts of the key, you've got to go down each of the tower um, tower staircases and right. you really have to traipse through every room, most almost every room in this dungeon to get all four of those keys to open that center room to let you into the Tower of Inverness. And um, I didn't realize that until I reread it again last night. I forgot about that fact, and, and I thought that's really cool. Yeah, it is. It really makes their work cut out for them. Yeah, and yeah, and this is, <laughs> this this can be a killer dungeon, that's for sure. But uh, it takes it takes more wits than dice rolling, which I yeah. like. I like uh, I like modules that have a good amount of both. Uh, you yeah, know, good combats, but also use your brain. Don't just hack and slash through everything. Use your brain. Get around traps. Figure stuff out. It's yeah, and if modules. you're looking for an adventure that like. You know, as far as like dungeon ecology, you're looking in the wrong place, folks. This is this is this is like what this is one of those adventures where I guess the the moniker has been termed for like I guess this one and White Plume Mountain, uh, um, maybe Tomb of Horrors to a lesser degree. It's what they call like a funhouse dungeon. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it's yeah. kind of got a little bits of everything in there, almost including the kitchen sink. But that's what makes it really cool, because this was a tower that was owned by some crazy mad wizard. Well, you expect some crazy mad wizard kind of stuff around. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's not supposed to make any sense. And that's what keeps the players on their toes. They don't know what's going to be behind that next door. They don't know what's going to be around that next corner. And the paranoia factor normally for players is pretty much, but it goes up a few notches in this one. goes up to 11. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's why I like it. It, it like it because it is so unpredictable. That's why you gotta think. 
Hmm. I'm looking for the author of this uh, particular module, Alan Hammock. Yeah. He looks like he is part of the uh, BoardGameGeeks.com board, so at least he is oh. com- he's active in the community, I guess. Well, very cool. Yeah, maybe we could talk to him and find out if we can get a copy of that that uh, that return because that would be awesome if we could find that. Yeah, I was trying to go through Wizard's site to see if because they had for a while they had a lot of free module downloads. I was trying to see what was on the list, and uh, I didn't see it there. Hmm. Man, if there's anyone out there in the uh, gaming community that can provide us this uh, this 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 return to the Ghost Tower of Invernus, I'd really like to get that. Cool. All right, well, uh, let's head into our next segment, then. You think I'm mad? Perhaps I am. What are you, a wizard, a genius? Darn, a perfectly good brain wasted. Game mechanics. Okay, everybody, let's uh, continue on with game mechanics with uh, our theme today for Dungeon Dungeon Module C2, Ghost Tower Inverness. And what we're going to talk about here is the uh, visual handouts. They're with the adventure and i guess also maybe a further discussion about you know visual handouts in general um in this particular adventure you have six visual aids for the adventurers one on the uh there's a room with the uh the one the bunch of bugbears in stasis you got the one for the chess room the little chess piece here which i love Mm -hmm. you got another visual aid uh, it shows a depiction of the key to finally get into the elemental layers. And you have also the elemental layers uh, of the uh, of the ghost tower. And surprisingly enough, I don't see a earth level handout la- <laughs> one. They don't have one for the earth level. At least I don't have it in mind. <laughs> Yeah, the, uh, yes, it is. It is going to be on the... Uh, the uh, oh, you know why there isn't one for the Earth level? Because you can't see around every corner because that the, the hedge. Right. You can't really back, see around. It's on, it's on the back, yeah, though. It's, that's the, oh, yeah, that's okay. the DM one. I remember why they don't have one for the players because... Oh, that's right. Yes, because of the hedge. the nature exactly. of that level. Yeah, that all that vegetation you can't see around. Oh, the handout you mean, but the Earth level. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you don't have one for the earth level because of that, all that vegetation. But you have one for the uh, the last level, which trying to get a hold of the soul gem. But uh, these these handouts are really good for for the time what they are. One of the things I was thinking about if you're going to be writing this today in the 21st century, 2012, is what you could do is because of our access to technology. Well, you can use for your own players, for your own experience. What I would do is I would scan these visual aids, yeah. make them maybe a little bit bigger, yeah. big enough to put miniatures on. Mm. So like the sarcophagus level or the visual aid, particularly for the chess level, if you want to do it that way. Or you could just grab a chessboard and yeah. use that as your visual aid for, visual aid, uh, for the uh, chess level. Or, you know, for the other one with, like, with the bugbears, uh, expand that out in whatever program that you might have on your computer after you scan that page in. And when you print it out, it's big enough just for, like, your miniature. So something, just another added visual dimension for your players to, to enjoy the adventure. 
And I guess you could do that if you wanted to with the other visual aids for the different elemental layers if you wanted. So um, that was just one way I thought you could uh, maybe enhance the experience for your players if you have you know ways and means to do that. Just uh, somehow just make the image uh, big enough to where you could put mo- uh, uh, miniatures on. You know, print it out. It'll probably be on several sheets of paper, but you know. Just do like a fast draft printing and Kinko. use some inexpensive paper yeah, or go to Kinko's, however you want to do it. And don't worry, you're not breaking copyright because you're using it for your own purposes. So, <laughs> Well, you but have that a was, physical book. They're not going to complain. Well, that, of course. Well, as long as you have the, the physical book, yeah, you're, you're good to go because you're, you're only using it for yourself. And you could probably do that with some of the other stuff in here, too. If you wanted to take some visual images and add them more, if you so desire, you could do that too. Why not? I mean, I could see one way you could do, um, like the uh, they have a picture of the key on page seven. Uh, you could probably take that image, maybe uh, you know, scan that, copy that image, and print it out for your player. So here's another picture of the key if you want another view of it, something like that. So. Uh, that's just other ways of doing it. Uh, we talked about in a show a while back about using visual aids and you know props for um, for your game and how it could enhance it and some of the pluses and minuses of it. And I think for this particular game, I like using uh, visual aids and props in my games if if I could do it. I don't like to overdo it too much but you know just enough maybe like a map to hand out you know a, a picture or something and that's like when this whole C series came out like the first one Hidden Shrine of Tomoachan then Ghost Tower and so on a lot of them had some really good visual aids for the players reason being is because they were originally for tournaments they're the C series the competition series of modules uh, it helps the players visualize more instead of giving some incredible description that could take a long time here's a picture of what you're seeing and that cuts down on time when you're doing a tournament and it just helps maybe the players maybe plan things out better you're not repeating yourself and they'll say well what was that you said again about this particular part or what was it about this area here it's all right there there's there's no questions about it there's no ambiguities so um, I think it does enhance the play. It makes it easier in a lot of ways. But you don't want to overdo it. You don't want to overload them with a whole bunch of stuff. Just some key areas where you think there may be a little bit of detail is needed. And you can have a visual aid ready for your players. And I think it works really great with this module, especially when you kind of think of ways you can tinker with it. Like uh, printing out those particular areas a little bit bigger and you can actually use them as a like a battle mat for your players to use or like the chess level if you don't want to print it out why not just use a regular chess board or a checkerboard you know do it that way too and that just adds a little bit more fun in, uh to the whole you know uh adventure experience so that's my two coppers on it what do you think vince i think handouts are great and i like your idea of the chess board like will even said that he used the chess board yeah. but I, I actually like your idea of going to kinko's or wherever your own copy machine if you have a scanner on your, your printer mm-hmm and making these visual aids big enough or actually grab the battle mats that they, they sell with the dry erase marker. Sure, you could do that too. And just draw it out for the players if you're, if you're really that artistic enough to do it. Or have the patience, I say. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of yeah, like I, that. 
I remember one that we did for a Hackmaster game. It was just a few years back. It was a tournament one, and they actually put the 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 uh, they had the thing printed out big enough that we could put minis on it. This is where we were on the map, and we're looking at it, and we're mm-hmm. like, "Wait a minute, this looks like a pinball machine." <laughs> we're inside a pinball machine. <laughs> ah! <laughs> well, what's that? that was really scary. <laughs> Matt. Yeah. What's that paper that they generated? They just came up with at Gen Con last year. Oh, it's that gaming paper. That yes. I, yeah, so basically you can buy yourself a giant roll of yeah. uh, graph paper. Ooh. Just pre and rip it and design it, and then when you get to the game, lay them out as you need them. Right. Oh, I love it. Yeah, that that's something I would totally do. Um, I mean, I have it's plenty like of game mats. Paper with, with the grid on it? Yeah. Yeah, awesome. it's basically uh, take like uh, wrapping bomber. paper that size of a roll. Yeah, and it's basically like wrapping paper, except it's all grid. Okay. Yeah, I believe that the uh, the, the the game paper that, that they sell it here, it is a five foot by two foot section. That's how long the roll is. Nice. Okay. When you when you put it all completely out, it might be a little lo- longer than that. It might be a little wider than that. But once you write on it, you can't use it again. So you might want to bring some plexiglass so you can write on top of it. You know what I'm saying? Right. Or oh, yeah, that's a good idea yeah. too. Or if you plan on reusing certain settings a lot, you could just draw those out and uh, pull them out of the closet. Say, like with this module, if you were to recreate yes. the aids, you recreate them on the gaming paper and then just toss it in your module. Nice. Yeah, Greg's that's a good idea. The dot com of the uh, gaming paper. Greg, tell him, tell me about this thing. Well, I'm, I'm looking at the website now, and I see you can get um, you can get hexes and squares. Yeah, you can get it in I think uh, eight and a half by eleven sheets, and then on the rolls, and um, the rolls are of course the where you're going to save a lot of money uh, for the amount of paper you get. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of lot of ways you can use this stuff. Uh, you know, I like the idea of bringing like a piece of plexiglass or something. That's a good idea. Yeah, it's a really good idea. Yeah. The only issue now, the only issue with that now, just remember now that each square, uh, I believe that each square in here, yep, each square equals 10 feet. Right. right. So when you look at how long this is thing, uh, it's 130 feet, maybe it's 150 feet. I can't, it depends on which room you're in. So just take that into uh, scale too as well. Right, right. paper, Nick. <laughs> but I noticed there's some modules on here that looks like, maybe that's fourth edition modules, I'm not sure. I don't know, Slayers of the Sinking Garden, never heard of it. But they have them set up for certain games here. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. They have Adventure Maps Mega Dungeon 1, which is pretty much a generic dungeon, it looks like. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting product. Oh, yeah, it's oh. huge. Yeah. 30 square foot of playing surface. Wow. Yeah, I might want to order some of this stuff. Yeah, this stuff is really not that bad and everything. And if you take a look, the the, the hexes, of course, are for your like you know like battle tech and stuff like that, right. or whatever. Or outside adventures. Yeah, your overland yeah. adventure. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. What do you th- What do you think, Matt, about the handouts? Uh, I l- I would be more likely to recreate the handouts in a home game than actually give the players handouts. When I run modules, I don't like my players knowing I'm running a module. Oh, okay. So, mm, good point. I, so if I were to run this, I would have all my notes and transfer them onto like regular paper. So that mm. way it just looks like it's something I created. And yeah, maybe a more experienced player would be able to figure out, hey, I'm doing this. 
I'm using this particular module, but most likely they probably won't. Uh, tournament in a tournament setting, absolutely you have to use. I would use the handouts as create designed, but for a home game, I'm going to be using like battle mats and miniatures and recreate everything mm-hmm. on the handouts, but not actually use the handouts themselves. And my copy of C2 I actually bought used, so all the handouts were already torn out, with and now they're just stuffed in loose leaf style. At which point I'm so afraid of like losing them <laughs> at this point. Like, oh, no, this one slipped out and I need it for my game now. What am I going to do? Mm. So just so I prefer leaving my modules intact <laughs> as well. But I I like the handouts. I th- it really is a lot easier to uh, show your players the things in question, particularly when it comes to the grid, because having that uh, the, like the chess room. Because they're far more likely to figure out, hey, we need to move like chess pieces if they're looking from a top-down perspective than right. they are you just trying to describe what they see. Same with the uh, bugbears. When they have that top-down view, it gives them a little different perspective that your description isn't going to give them. But I prefer creating those with like 3D objects and miniatures. And fortunately, with my gaming group, we have lots of those. <laughs> Okay. Cool. Yep. Anybody yep. else got anything on this? I don't know. I think we kind of covered it top to bottom there. So now just let us know what you think out there. You can call us on our hotline, 570-865-4210. Or you can email us at rfistaff at gmail.com. Uh, Nick, we're going to send you a cookie in the mail. Uh, I'd rather have 100 experience points. All right, how about five? <laughs> okay, uh, 50 experience points. Now you're getting none. Oh, okay, I'll take the cookie. Okay. So, okay, <laughs> I guess then on that high note, we'll move on to our next segment. The Dragon's Horde. And now we're going to the Dragon's Horde, and we're going to talk about the magical item that the players are trying to retrieve. And the Great see. MacGuffin. Yes, the great, great lethal MacGuffin, the yeah. Soul Gem. Not that it can be confused with Marvel Soul Gem that's on the Infinity Gauntlet. Right. Uh, yeah, true. Very true. Yes. And but, not to be confused with the uh, dance show Soul Train. No. Definitely <laughs> not a part of the Soul Train. The Soul Train is not powered by the Soul Gem. Exactly. All, even though it can light up a room, this is a gem whose light you do not want to be in the path of. Oh, no. No, no, no. Because when the players enter the final room with the soul gem, the gem is shining light into uh, an eighth of the room at any given point. It's The room's a circular room, so basically the room's been divided up into eight slices, if you will. And the light shines from a gem at random into any one of those quadrants or whatever eight quadrants would be. Uh, But in what happens to any characters caught within the light, they must make a save versus petrification. If they make the save, them and all their possessions turn a nice ghostly white. And yeah, oh yeah, uh, all their magic items, except for the amulet of recall, which is in the, the module as well, yeah. Cease to be magical. 
I know. <laughs> yeah, so if you have a glut of magic items in your game you wishing weren't there, this gym can help you with this. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, however, though, if they fail that save, it gets a little worse. Yeah, they still go ghostly white. All their stuff loses its magical ability. However, upon failing that save, they also lose their soul. And the soul gets pulled into the soul gem because it it collects souls. And what the players need to do, they need to only do 20 hit points of damage to render this soul gem uh, inoperable so they can actually take it back and retrieve the MacGuffin. The problem with that is magic spells do not affect it. It has to be done with hand weapons. Yeah, you have to physically attack it. You got to break through that. What is it? Uh, right. There's a sphere around it. Right. Yeah, it's like a force field or something like that. It has 20 points. Yes. You must break through that as it's randomly popping this light into the different uh, zones of the room. And at which point, your players are probably going to die unless they're really lucky with their petrification rolls. And all that magic stuff they got at the beginning of the game, if you follow the tournament Roger rules, they're not going to be magical after this. No. Oh, and it gets better. Yes. It get, gets better. Should they break it? Well, actually, first, as they're doing damage to the gem, for every damage they deal to the gem, they take the same amount of damage. Yeah. <laughs> if, when you deal that final blow and shatter the gem... Say it only had one hit point left, and you deal 10, you're taking 10. It's what you dealt, not what it took. And then, once it's destroyed, the players can then grab it. But uh, the gem, it can be destroyed. If you have a magical weapon, too, and you roll a natural 20, you can destroy the gem that way. But if you do it that way... It shatters, releasing all the souls. And all the souls are going to kill you. Yes. <laughs> and the text specifically saying, the gem will shatter and release the millions. Yes, the millions. Of souls trapped inside. It will instantly slay all living creatures in the tower. <laughs> right. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, so this is just the nasty, nasty magic item. Yeah, you. this is something that the players will have to be seeking out because most of them probably won't actually make it afterwards. And the Amulet of Recall is actually kind of almost necessary in some ways because once you shatter it and the millions of souls come, it, this is expecting you to use that amulet of recall immediately to flee the millions of released souls. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I I can actually see that using this and spawning several adventures from it. First, you run the module. They get the soul gem. They shatter it. Now they have millions of souls to deal with. That's your next story. Where how are you going to capture these millions of souls? Is there an AD&D equivalent of the Ghostbusters handy? <laughs> so, and some of these souls are probably souls that you didn't want let out. Because right. Some of them might be really nasty evil, too. Right. Cats and dogs living together. Yeah. I mean, it, Mass hysteria. Right. I mean, there could be good souls. There could be bad souls. Or maybe the souls end up doing combat with each other. There, so many different yeah. stories can be told with the release of this. 
So it's something I could see using, but a lot of thought in another game other than this module. But you're going to need to put a little thought into all the ramifications of it because it's probably going to kill your players. At best, it's just going to destroy all their magic items. Right. So use it kind of judiciously. So what does everyone else think of it? It's nasty, but just straight up, yeah, it's nasty. And I just, I just love the idea of like um, all your stuff, including yourself, turning white. Apparently, someone watched Galactica nineteen eighty. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the only thing I could think of. <laughs> just like if anybody knows that show, how it just ugh, well. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, all your st- all your your whole uniform, everything turned white. I don't know why. Just thought of that. Yeah, I think it's a it's a great item for this adventure. You know, as the as the as the the main goal, I think it'd be hard to use in another in another setting. But as as you said, it would have to be used judiciously. You'd have to think think it through uh, the ramifications or what are, what are going to happen. I don't think it would go over too well with with everybody. You'd have to have uh, some very powerful players using it, but it would be very interesting. Well, the one thing that the module notes at the end is that your party members can be brought back. Yeah, that is true. That is the, true. Uh, Seer knows how to use the soul gem, and he will bring them back if necessary. So it's not like you're completely gone. So that would be a reason why you wouldn't want to destroy it. Right. You would want to bring it back, and if anybody's soul got sucked into it, he can bring it back. Right. Exactly. Unless you were trying to damage it with a magical weapon and accidentally shattered it. Oh, well. <laughs> like I said, I call this a killer module for a reason. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it is rough. I just love the, the the box text that describes to the players what happens to them when they fail their saving throw, when the, 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 the beam of light hits them. Mm-hmm. You know how they scream horribly and they see a long, drawn-out, wailing scream, and it just goes on. And then I said, like, I like that. That's, that's an awesome character death. Yeah. I got, I got killed by a gem this weekend. Well, how about you? as your vision clears an image of the character pale and ghostly streams out of the body and toward the soul gem getting smaller the nearer it gets to it wow oh i think i would rather deal with the demolition s1 yeah oh no kidding (laughs) you could (laughs) Yeah. yeah you could even if say the entire party got sucked into the soul gem run an adventure inside the soul gem Ooh. It's like purgatory in there. Right. Yeah. Ooh. That would be interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a good that's a good idea. Right. I, I wonder if your soul was stuck in the soul gem. That's the end of your character. What if your character has a wish spell? Or what if one of your teammates has a wish spell? Would the wish spell pull the soul back out? Yeah, I guess so. It could. Yeah. I, yeah, I guess I why not? Yeah. yeah I, I, I would agree with a wish. A yeah. wish would do fine. A limited wish, probably not. This is an artifact. This is an artifact that this it just this is a very powerful item. Yeah. Oh yeah. I can already see the great GM Joe screwing us over with this too. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with a wish too. What's that? You didn't word that? Oh, the soul comes out and goes back in. Uh, <laughs> say permanently in your words. <laughs> he did do stuff like that to us. That's just me. Right. Or if a few party members were to be sucked in and you use that wish spell to bring them back, who says their soul goes back in their own body? 
Uh, <laughs> oh, that's just, oh my gosh, that's just evil. Friends can tag along on when they come out, too. Right. Now, since we're on the subject of this, uh, this, this great and historical module, uh, take a close look at the credits down there. Look at the playtesters. Playtest, playtest. Mike Carr. Uh, page 16. Yeah, Helen Cook, Harold Johnson. Errol Lotus, Gene yeah. Wells. Wow. Lawrence Schick. And Lawrence Schick. Ain't that amazing to see all of them? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Now, yeah. they said they got some Jeff D. Art there and LaForce, and they got uh, Willingham and Sullivan on there, too. But I don't see their initials on these, these doggone, these pieces of artwork. I can't tell who did what. Maybe some of the player oh, aids? Okay, okay. Sutherland generally was the cartographer of the company. Oh, okay. He did some artwork, but he was like he was like really known for his cartography work. Mm. Also, Frank Mentor had some development hands in this. Yes. Thanks, Frank. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Frank. <laughs> for killing us. <laughs> yeah, Frankie. Still a killer dungeon there, Frankie. Okay, cool. I guess we're heading to the creature feature next. Creature, creature, feature, feature, theater, theater, theater. The creature feature theater this week is going to focus on the monster in the back of the module that actually appeared in Monster Manual 2 with the same exact description. And who's the artist for this one? Is that a Jeff D. Art? I really can't Looks tell. like D. and Otis. Is it, is it? Okay. Yeah, Otis is the one in the lower right. Definitely that's Errol Otis's stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because it has an E-O on the top. Yep. Oh, okay. Anyway, uh, this is the fire bat. is one of the rare creatures in here, and it's pretty nasty, this creature, if you read about it. It looks like a simple bat that comes from the fire elemental plane, which usually happens when you summon a fire elemental. These little buggers come flying in as well, and you don't notice it somehow. And they can reproduce at this, you know, the drop of a hat, practically. But the nasty thing about these creatures are is that they they tag team against you. So if you send in, say, like 20 of these bats and there's five of you in the party, four bats team up out of the group. They can, like they form little groups equal to the party members and just attack. And when they attack, I don't mean by, you know, swoop, attack, swoop, attack. They swoop, they attack, they latch themselves onto you and start sucking the life out of you. Yeah. And so... They either fill themselves up in three rounds or you die. Yeah, they suck your blood, right? Yeah. Yeah. They do 2d4 points of damage each round, and they don't have to roll attacks anymore. It's just 2d4 points of damage (laughs) once they latch onto you. So you're supposed to get them off of you when they're latched onto you. Otherwise, they will kill you. After they're done filling themselves in three rounds, they do latch off and they go back to their lair, which you could chase them back there and confront them, but they will fight to the death with the same method. Now, I, you guys have any alternate ways to use this creature other than what was listed in here? Um, well, I would think this would be one of those creatures if you were maybe going... I would throw this probably like in against the giants where you're up against the fire giants. I think you would find these little buggers in the fire giants' lair. Yeah. Yeah. Any, said- any, any area where there's fire, they, they'd be appropriate. Yeah. Maybe even the, in the Fire Node and Temple of Elemental Evil? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 
Uh, they can fly through lava or magma without a problem. You douse them with water, it takes 10 gallons of water to put the flames out. Ooh, wow. Yeah, and which they can't fly, but they can still do 1d4 points of damage against you if they're successfully attacking you. Guess you need a decanter of endless water for that one. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, see, the funny thing about it is, though, Vince, yeah. when, they're, when they're on you, they're attacking you. What are those things called? Uh, the little the mosquito-like ones? Sturges? Sturges, yeah. yes. You see, the thing is, the damage that you're taking is actually fire damage. You saw that, right? Yeah. Yeah, because they, they all radiate like uh, several hundred degrees of, of heat from their bodies. Yeah, it's a burning effect on the victim. But I don't like that. Yeah, I don't like these guys. Uh, let's go to the <laughs> North Pole because, no, I don't like fire. That's, That's a nasty opponent. That's for fire, sure. bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. see, my question is, let's say that it attacked a, 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 uh, a player character that was wearing plate mail armor and you had four of these on him. You figure that if, if you got four of them already in this damage on him, by the time they leave or get killed or whatever, the armor's not cool. No. no, you could you could rule as a DM saying that he's getting extra burn damage because of his armor being on fire. Well, he's, he's getting be a charcoal briquette. Yeah, he's getting cooked inside of his own plate mail yes. armor. <laughs> I better stop saying things because this thing is killer enough as it is. Another thing to add is uh, this can detect invisible opponents as well due to advanced oh, sonar. That adds in another nasty dimension. Yeah. yeah. It's me. Oh, yes, they can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They have true flight, so they don't actually swoop or fly in a sense. They just have true flight, so they're right. different from regular bats. Right. But th- there's yeah. also one saving grace for the player. It's all they have to do is kill 20, if only 25% or less of your starting group is still alive, the rest will flee. Oh, okay. So if so, if twenty are coming at you, if you kill fifteen of them, you don't have to worry about the other five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they they do flee once they their numbers get thinned, but yeah, they're just really really nasty. And what's really yeah, you know what's really bad about this whole thing is that that room that they're in, that's with the fire plane room. Yeah. Yeah. Plane of fire room or whatever you want to call it. You know, yeah. when you're dealing with these guys, you're also dealing with the fire giant and they're throwing boulders. Right. Yes. <laughs> so Again, what is the... <laughs> this is a killer module. <laughs> That's why it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just can't say we're fighting bats, but there's a guy down there throwing giant boulders. And she's like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, these bats are like, ah, my fire. Ah. <laughs> it also says when the bats die... A burst of flame envelops them and sucks them back to the uh, elemental plane of fire. So when you kill one, would you have them do a little bit of parting damage to a player, say, they were attached to? Yes. Yeah, if they were attached, definitely. I do like a D4. Yeah, D4. Yeah, that's good. Definitely. I have no problem with that. If they explode, that sudden burst of heat hits. Yeah, exactly. Hits you and goes. Yeah. And you I'd did. Say like an additional D4 damage would be good. Right. And if you have three or four of them on you, that's 4D4 of damage you'll be taking if you're able to kill them all. Right. <laughs> so everything in this module is pretty much nasty. <laughs> but so much fun. 
At least well, on the DM side. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we never talked about the Medusa. We didn't talk about oh, all the other man. monsters in here. I mean, it, it, it is, there's a lot of nasty monsters. And we didn't even really talk about the water level. And that's yeah. not cool because that whole water level is affected by that reverse gravity area. Yeah. You know what I was thinking of is when you get sucked in that reverse gravity thing from the fire to the water, I was thinking about that, that uh, scene in Time Bandits. Where yeah. they get sucked in and they're like falling up into the water. Yeah, right, the right. Time and the, to the time of a legend. Oh, I was right. only, the, now that I look on the back of the module, that picture done by Jeff D. There's that one guy. He's like up in the air. It's like, oh, he got sucked into the reverse gravity. Bye bye. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I oh, think that's now that awesome picture, picture makes sense. A <laughs> so, yes. DM ruling here. A DM ruling here. That room with the was the bugbears, right? Yes. Yeah. When they're there, frozen, you walk into the room, and they you eventually start. For every what is it? People in the room is four of them. Yes. What about it? Says if you enter the room and you leave the room, they'll still come alive, right? Mm-hmm. The rules. Now, what if you leave the room from the other side? Are they still going to come alive? I think every time you pass through one of those openings, the plane of that alive. opening, four yeah, more come that, alive, whether you're going in or whether you're going out. That's the way I read it. Just yeah, that, that's how no, I read it, too. So nowhere else, then, right? I don't think so. So, that, like, teleporting, well, you'll be fine. Or, like, dimension door, you'll be fine. But levitating, you'd still break, break the plane, and, right. and they would come alive. Yeah. yeah I wonder if applies. you went ethereal... I guess going ethereal, will you be okay too? I suppose. Yeah, seems that you would. Sure, I wasn't sure. That's why I was questioning uh, different ways because of players figuring it out. They probably wouldn't figure it out at first, but yeah, well, it's the same thing with the chess room. That if you attempt to fly, climb, or teleport, you still get affected by the negative consequences of moving incorrectly in that room, regardless. Yeah, as mm-hmm. soon as you land somewhere in that room, you're going to get zapped. Because you're <laughs> going to be in the wrong space, most right. likely. <laughs> and well, if you fly, I huh, across that room, but when you come back through is when you get the negative uh, adjustments, because you got to come right, back. Right, that, that's what I meant. Once you land in somewhere else in that yeah. room, if you do, like using a fly spell or levitate. Yeah. If you don't land in an area which would be considered a correct move, yeah, you're going to get zapped. <laughs> like a little zap picture. <laughs> oh, that's an awesome picture. That guy getting zapped in the background. It's just awesome. Yeah. Guys, if you put, say you put the visual aid down, how would you guys portray that to the players that is that they can only move a certain way? Would you tell them, this is a chessboard, you're a rook, you're a queen, whatever, or would you let them figure it out? I would have them figure it out. Oh yeah, no, definitely yeah. have them figure it out. Oh yeah, I just want to see your what you would do as a DM to have them figure it out. And, and I would make play. sure, make sure that the, all the players that you have do not know how to play chess. <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> that's going to be hard to find. But, so Nick, how would you handle that if I was the player and I was stepping on there and I was say the knight? Yeah, and I, I would. Forward. You just you tell me, okay, you move forward, you're fine. Do you allude to them that you can keep moving forward, or? I'd say, okay, you move. How far are you moving? Where are you moving? And as soon as you make a, you move your miniature to an area that's, you know, would be an incorrect move. I would say, stop. Mm-hmm. I'd roll the damage and say, oh, okay, you stop. You as soon as you go in this square right here, it turns red and you take blah 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 damage and it turns white. 
Mm-hmm. Well, Skype seems to be going on <laughs> conniption fit time now. Yeah. Which is thing because we are at the end of the show. Okay. <laughs> and uh, you can go to our website, rfipodcast.com, read up on the show notes that Matt puts up there and read, look at the little neat graphic he puts up there all the time for us to, yeah. to be a call. I would us. like to hear some really cool stories of some people who ran this module. Yes. RFI I would st- love to hear that. Robot Nick. <laughs> I know. It's like everybody's going out. Okay, whatever. <laughs> RFI staff, gmail.com, 570-865-4210, the hotline. Uh, unseenservant.us. Am I getting that right, Greg? That's correct, yes. Is the play-by-post forums where you can join up and uh, maybe have your own game hosted there. They do have some RPG chat going on, so you don't have to just play. You can go there just to chat along. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's about it. I guess we're going to say goodbye and maybe start a forum topic about this, Nick. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking of doing. I'll start a forum topic on this one if uh, before or after we uh, do the sh- uh, post the episode. Uh, wait till we post the episode, then we'll post up a forum topic. I, I will personally do that. I'll start What's the forum off. topic going to be on again? The Ghost Tower of Inverness. I want to hear if people can write up their stories about it. Yeah. Okay, good to go then. And what I'll do is I'll do a review on it. It's, it's, just, it's, it's in the list of things that I need to do reviews on because okay. the UK series is what I'm working on now. Okay. Right. Cool. All right. Well, keep it original, keep it old school, and good night, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. Go ahead, Greg. You can say bye. <laughs> okay. Bye, everybody. <laughs> See you all later. <laughs> Roll for initiative. And keep your fire bats with blunt weapons. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> hey! <laughs> and pigs have orc faces. Yes. No, orcs have pig faces. <laughs> pigs have orc faces. I like that. That's good. Go with that. I said it wrong. <laughs>